Welcome to the newest episode of the Pool Cleaner Hour. My name's Tinkerbuff, and for the next little bit, I'm going to be talking to you about various things and various stuffs as you lounge in your mind's pool to heat up or cool down. Either way, it's your pool. I'm just here to make it cozy. The most merciful thing in the world, I think, is the inability of the human mind to correlate all of its contents. We live on a placid island of ignorance in the midst of black seas of infinity, and it was not meant that we should voyage far. The sciences, each straining in their own direction, have harmed us little, but someday the piercing together of disassociated knowledge will open up terrifying vistas of reality, and of our frightful position therein, that we shall either go mad from the revelation, or flee from the light into the peace and safety of a new dark age. Sleepwalking murder, also known as homicidal sleepwalking, describes the terrifying event that an individual awakens to discover they have murdered someone while they were sleeping, with no memory of their actions during their slumber. They are left in a dangerous position facing a murder charge with little to no defense. This occurrence is thankfully very rare, however, it has happened with at least 68 cases of sleepwalking murders reaching a courtroom testing the jury, and leaving a task of deciding whether a murder committed while asleep means criminal responsibility for the unfortunate sleepwalker. The sleepwalking state is often referred to as an automatism, meaning to be acting involuntary, and this can either be due to mental health, insane automatism, or external factors such as non-insane automatism, and outside stressors which can bring the mind to madness. Our first story is about Kenneth Parks. Kenneth Parks is a Canadian man who began suffering insomnia in his 20s, which was brought on after he lost his job and put himself in a lot of debt as a result of a severe gambling addiction. He was recently fired for stealing 30k from his job and he had forged his wife's signature to obtain more gambling money. Hitting rock bottom, he and his wife were putting their house up for sale to earn some money to pay back his debts, and Kenneth went to his first meeting for Gamblers Anonymous. Unfortunately, on the night of May 23rd, 1987, Parks would get out of bed, drive 14 miles to his in-law's house. There, he would fetch a tire iron from his car trunk and using his key to enter the house, he proceeded to the bedroom and choked his father-in-law until they were unconscious. He then beat his mother-in-law with a tire iron and stabbed her repeatedly with a kitchen knife. He ran upstairs to the teenage daughter's bedrooms, but he stopped outside the door. He stood there, silently, and then, just as he came, he ran out again and left the house. After the killing, Kenneth drove to the police station. He arrived at 4.45 a.m. covered in blood, and he had said, I just killed someone with my bare hands. Oh my god. I just killed someone. I've just killed two people. My god, I've just killed two people with my hands. My god, I've just killed two people. I've killed my mother and my father-in-law. I stabbed them. I beat them to death. My god. After careful examination of the case, the experts could find no other explanation of the crime than sleepwalking. Kenneth underwent a series of sleeping tests and psychological tests. The EEG scans showed that Kenneth had some abnormal brain activity during deep periods of sleep, 
in periods of partial awakenings, which is indicative of parasomnia. Since there allegedly is no way to fake one's own EEG results, and Kenneth had appeared to feel no pain when he arrived at the police station, it was determined that he was sleepwalking when he attacked his in-laws. The experts described Kenneth's actions as a result of many circumstances converging. He had plans to fix his in-laws' furnace, he was familiar with the route he would take to get to their house, and he was restless from anxiety and worried about the upcoming deaths and trials. The experts thought that it suddenly occurred to Kenneth in his sleep that he should fix his in-laws' furnace right now. He then got up and drove to the house and was startled by his in-laws. He attacked them both without knowing what he was doing. Our next story is about Robert Ledru. Robert Ledru was one of France's finest detectives in the 19th century. Although living in Paris, he was working on a case in La Havre when he was contacted by his Parisian office and asked to take over a murder investigation there that the local police were having difficulty with. Another man from Paris, André Monet, had been shot and killed on a local beach. André Monet was the proprietor of a Paris dress shop who had recently come down to the coast for the good of his health. His body had been found on the beach at dawn. Intrigued by this killing, for which there appeared to be no reason, motive, or suspect, Lejeureux went to investigate the scene of the crime. Ever observant, he walked along the sandy beach to the spot where the corpse had been discovered. At the age of 35, Ledru was famed as the man who caught murderers and who opposed all violent law outbreakers. He had made his name in Paris where he had broken up black magic cults and had arrested scores of anarchists. Three years later, in 1884, he had tracked down and led to the imprisonment of a group of political rebels who planned to overthrow the government. But this would still prove to be his most wild case to date. The only clues were the bullet, which was far too common to be of any use, and the footprints left by the killer, and judging by these very footprints, the killer did not come to the beach barefoot or in shoes, rather he came to the beach wearing socks. Lejeureux examined the footprints and came to a horrible realization. The killer was missing the big toe on his right foot. Lejeureux was also missing this same toe, and had awoken that day to find that his socks were wet. Furthermore, the bullet that was the same type that he used. He concluded that he must have murdered Monet while he was sleepwalking. Understandably, the French police were reluctant to accept this theory when Lejeureux turned himself in. However, Lejeureux took out a plaster cast of a footprint on the beach sand, and judging by the cast, the killer was missing a big toe of his right foot. In front of everyone, Lejeureux took off his shoe, pulled off his toe, and demonstrated the absence of a big toe on his right foot. Still in disbelief, the police department decided to do an experiment. They placed him in a cell for overnight observation, and the first night he did in fact sleepwalk, so they decided to place a gun in the cell with him, and the next night he shot at the guards in his sleep. Police decided that he could not be held responsible for these actions, but that he was still a threat to general society. So he was exiled to a farm in the countryside. There he would live for the next 50 years with his life guarded with the guards and nurses. Stephen Steinberg. In 1981, Stephen Steinberg of Scottsdale, Arizona, 
was accused of murdering his wife, Elena, by stabbing her 26 times with a kitchen knife as she cried out for her children. He initially tried to blame it on burglars and a home invasion gone wrong. But after police investigators debunked that possibility, he confessed to killing her, but claimed to have done it while sleepwalking, which resulted from excessive stress caused by his wife's constant nagging for more money. Stephen himself testified that he was unaware of the killing at the time because he must have been sleeping when it took place, and so it must have been happening while he was sleepwalking. The defense brought in a psychiatrist as an expert witness who testified that Stephen killed his wife while in the grip of a dissociative reaction, and so he could not be aware that he was doing it at the time. After deliberating, the jury returned its verdict, finding that he was not guilty on grounds that he was suffering from temporary insanity when he killed his wife. Because the insanity was only temporary and he was sane at the time of the acquittal, Stephen walked out of the court a free man. Members of the jury were quoted as stating they made the correct decision. Even though they knew they were still letting a murderer go, they felt they had no choice. They believed that Steinberg was sleepwalking and therefore should not be held responsible. However, Shirley Frondorf, an attorney and author, was outraged by this verdict. She wrote a book, Death of a Jewish American Princess, the True Story of a Victim on Trial. The title coming from how the husband and others referred to the victim, Elena, the husband described his wife as a spoiled, overindulgent brat, a stereotypical Jewish American princess. He said that she drove him out of his mind with her spending and her demands that he should be more successful. The defense strategy played to the jury's worst prejudices. Ironically and unsurprisingly, her book was harshly criticized in the New York Times by a male journalist who claimed the Burke that the book served no purpose but to anger people. In the aftermath of the case, however, Arizona changed its insanity defense laws, and judges now are required to impose a guilty but insane sentence in temporary insanity scenarios, such as that of the Steinberg case. Criminal defendants who are found guilty but insane these days would have to go to a mental institution, where they might have been interred for as long as they had been sentenced to prison. And for anybody who may not know, the mental institutions for the criminally insane is often argued to be much worse than going to a prison. And as much as people try to feign insanity to get out of jail, they do not realize what other hell they are putting themselves into, such as a 24-7 vegetative state or being surrounded by people who are actually criminally insane and never having a moment to your own thoughts. Scott Falater. In 1997, Mr. Falater was a 43 years old and found himself accused of murdering his wife. His horrified neighbor saw him put on a pair of gloves and proceeded to roll his battered wife into the swimming pool of his home, and there he would hold her head under the water. Scott and Yarmila Falati were happily married for over 20 years. Their relationship was stable, and they were living in a safe, quiet community. According to the police, this was not a high-crime area. However, religion was a factor of high importance to the family. Friends and neighbors said the only conflict between the two was that Scott Falater wanted more children, and Yarmila thought he spent too much time on religious activities. 
Their two children, son Michael, who is 12, and daughter Megan, who is 15, said they never witnessed the two fighting or arguing. It was around 10 or 11 p.m. on July 16th when their neighbor, Greg Coons, heard blood-chilling moaning and crying. When Greg peered over the wall separating him, he described a horrific scene. He told the police that Scott was stepping towards Yarmila's body, which was lying on the ground. He picked her up by the head and drug her helplessly towards the pool. When Greg watched Scott shove his, head's, his wife's head underwater and hold it there, he called police. When the police arrived, they found Miss Folliter was dead in the pool with 44 stab wounds, and Mr. Folliter was still in his pajamas, oblivious to what had happened and rather confused as to why there was police all over his backyard. After an extensive police interview where Mr. Folliter was told of the fate of his wife, he could offer no explanation for what had happened. Like Lowe and Steinberg, Folliter acknowledged that he must have committed the murder, but claimed he had no memory of it. During a search of the property, police found Mr. Folliter's bloody clothes and shoes and the murder weapon hidden in the spare tire well of his car. During his trial for first-degree murder, the defense claimed that Folliter was in a period of little sleep due to stress at his job, and on the day in question, he had removed all the tools from the spare tire space in his car, including the knife that was used in the murder. This was supposedly to fix a faulty pump in the pool. They said he did not complete the job and went to bed exhausted. When he rose, he was sleepwalking and returned to the pool to continue the task. However, he would fly into a rage when he was interrupted by his wife. They claimed his illogical actions were typical of someone who was sleepwalking. He is said to say his, his statement to the media was, I don't remember what happened. I do know one thing. I loved my wife. I've tortured myself a hundred times thinking about what Yarmila must have been thinking as she was attacked by me. She must have found the situation alarming, perplexing, and utterly terrible. After two years of trial in June 1999, he was found guilty of first-degree murder. One juror remarked that while Scott may have been sleepwalking at the time of the incident, when he dragged the body, I think he woke up and panicked. Several letters, including one from Yarmila's mother, were submitted to the judge when it came time to decide whether Scott should be sentenced to death. Scott was consequently given a life sentence more than two decades later, and he still continues to insist that he does not remember committing the violent crime. This next story is about Simon Fraser. At 1 a.m. the morning of April 10th, 1878, in their home on Lime Street, Glasgow, Simon Fraser was dreaming about a wild animal. The animal emerged from the floor and jumped into the cradle of Simon Fraser's infant boy as he slept next to his wife. As soon as he stood up, Fraser grabbed the untamed animal and threw it against the wall. He was fully woken by his wife's frantic screaming, and Fraser would come to terms with the fact that he had, in fact, snatched up his 18-month-old son and slammed their head against the wall, killing them instantly. Witnesses at his trial within the Edinburgh High Port gave evidence of previous injuries he had caused while fighting off visions in his nightmares. His father recounted how he had awoken one night to find his 14-year-old son on top of him, beating him. His sister also told the court how one night Simon had almost strangled her. The court was also told about one occasion when Simon had to be pulled out of the sea where he had gone to try and rescue his sister from drowning. 
when she was, of course, safe in bed at home. On another occasion, he had pulled his wife out of bed by the legs because he thought that he was saving her from a fire. The jury didn't even take a break, and after a brief minute or so, they returned the verdict that Fraser was not responsible for his actions, and that he was sane. However, even though he had been found not guilty, there was still some concern about the fact that Simon may commit yet another atrocity. It was rumored that a compromise was reached over a special arrangement. The details of the special arrangement were never made public, but it was reported that during the day, Fraser was a free man, but at night, he would be sleeping alone in a room locked from the outside where his wife would keep the key. In conclusion, thankfully sleepwalking homicides are extremely rare, but they do serve as a reminder of the complexities within the human mind and just how little we still understand of our own bodies. I hope you guys enjoyed this rather terrifying and spooky episode of the pool cleaner hour just in time for the halloween season um i have some more episodes coming up and until then i'll see you next monday